This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Before we open God's word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we are so thankful for your word that you have uh, revealed this in a unique way. You have preserved it down through the centuries, and you have put your, the stamp of your character upon your revelation. Father, we know that as our Lord prayed that we are to be sanctified by truth, and it is your word that is truth, and it is through God the Holy Spirit and the use of your word that we are matured, that the process of spiritual growth is not the same for everyone, but the means are, and that is the Spirit of God and the Word of God. But we have to study and prepare ourselves so that we may be uh, thoroughly equipped children of God. So, Father, now as we continue our study in Ephesians, learning so many of the wonderful blessings that you have given us, we pray that we might uh, be focused and can understand that which we study, that which we read, that which we review, that God the Holy Spirit would use it to just strengthen us in the inner man. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And this morning, we're going to begin to look at Christ's gift, gifts to the church. And this specifically is this opening section from verse 7 down through about verse 15, because it's all one long sentence. But the focus on these gifts, actually gifted people, is in verse, verses 11 and 12. We have spent the last couple of months looking at the background for this in terms of understanding what is significant about the ascension and the session of Christ and why that is so important to understand as a background to these verses. And because this focuses our, our thoughts upon the fact that God has a plan and the plan for this age was not revealed in the Old Testament. As Paul talks about at the beginning of chapter 3 in Ephesians, this was a mystery. It was a previously unrevealed truth that no one in the Old Testament even had a hint about, and you can't really find it anywhere in a study of the Old Testament because that would have sort of... Uh, given an indication that Israel would be rejecting their Messiah. 
And so there's, there's not even a shadow of a hint that God is going to be calling out a new people because God wanted Israel to have a fair opportunity to respond to the message of Jesus offering the kingdom. They rejected the kingdom. They rejected his message. They rejected him as Messiah. And so as a result, they were put out under uh, divine discipline, divine judgment, which has occurred through most of this church age. And God uh, had a plan for a second group that would be his people called the church. And this is integrally related to what is going on with the session of Christ in heaven. That is his being seated uh, next to the Father, at the right hand of the Father. And so many things are happening. But what we learn from John 14 and John 16 is that Jesus said that he had to go to the Father in order to send the Spirit. And all of the ministries of God the Holy Spirit to the believer in this church age, these are distinctive to this church age, are what we benefit from. They're part of those blessings that we have in this church age related to our our spiritual life, that, that these ministries of the Holy Spirit were not present in previous dispensations. And I don't believe they will be present There'll be similar things that won't be present in the tribulation. And this is this distinguishes all of us who are church age believers from believers of every other dispensation. And by working our way through this, it helps us to understand that application of scripture is not the silly superficial stuff that you get in sermons uh, in most churches today. You've seen the billboards, seven ways to uh, financial success, eight ways to have a happy marriage, five ways to uh, fulfill your life and be all you can be. All of these things, it's nothing more than motivation, psychological motivational messages that are not built on biblical exposition or a biblical theology, but they're just self-help tools uh, that anybody could go along with. And in fact, I've had some friends of mine that are unbelievers who commented on some of these uh, past, uh, pastors that they hear on t- television and say, well, they don't say anything that bothers me. It's nothing more than just basic psychology. That's not being a biblical pastor because when we grow spiritually, it's not by such superficial forms of application. We have to understand who we are in Christ. That's a thought process. We have to think differently from the world around us. We have to think differently from Uh, the popular ideals that are out there that many of us get exposed to, in fact, have to use that or are supposed to use that when we are engaged in certain types of careers and uh, different things that are built on just humanistic psychology. It's a real challenge for believers to live in the corrupt world of the devil and recognize that you can't adopt the same belief system that undergirds what's really expected of us in the world system. We're not to be conformed to the world. 
which is clearly stated in Romans 12 too. So we have to learn to think biblically. Application will automatically flow from learning to think biblically. If we understand who we are in Christ and what we have been given in Christ, then that should radically transform our lives and our thinking and our whole view of who we are and what God uh, plans, plans to do. So we come to this section in Ephesians 4, and it's going to answer some of these basic questions for us as we go through this. Let's just look at the main part of this section, this passage, Ephesians 4, 7 through 12. And as we read through this, I want to emphasize some of the key connective words in these these six verses, because that helps us to understand the flow of Paul's thought. So it starts off with but, and so that but tells us that it's a contrast to what goes before. And in the previous six verses, the emphasis is on the unity of the body of Christ, those things that we have together that are that are positional. In verse 3, it says that we are to keep the unity. That doesn't say to make the unity or to create the unity, but to maintain the unity. Well, the only way you can maintain it is if we understand the process that's laid out once we get down to verses uh, uh, 10, I mean 11 and following. So there's this contrast that in contrast to what we all have in common, what, is, what unifies us in the body of Christ, there are things that distinguish us. There are things that are different, that are distinctive about each believer. It begins, but to each one of us, and I will translate this to each one of us individually. Grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Then Paul says, therefore, therefore is there to, to really hits here uh, as a quote. Uh, not, he's not drawing a conclusion from what he has said before, but it's an inference on the basis of Paul's application of Psalm 68, 18. That's what we've been studying for the last uh, five or six weeks. Scripture says, and this quote to remind you, uh, David is writing about a historical situation when the Ark of the Covenant was being taken uh, to the Temple Mount for its future use in the in the temple. Now, I want you to think about this a minute. We're going to get into this in detail, but I know I'm going to have to tell you this at least ten times. The quote says, when he ascended on high, who's the he? We saw that. It is God. When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now, let me ask you a question. What does it mean to ascend? It means to go up. You have to go up from somewhere which is lower, right? Okay, from whence did the ark come? In the picture here, it takes us back, we go to Psalm, we'll go to Psalm 68, 
it goes back to Sinai because God gave the Israelites the law at Sinai, told them to all the instructions for building the, the uh, tabernacle, and then they left to go north, to go up, because remember, Jerusalem is always going up. It doesn't matter if you're coming from the north, south, east, or west, or even if your starting point, like Mount Sinai, might be a little higher, you're still going up. You have to go down in order to go up to Jerusalem. That's important because when you look at this analogy that he's applying to Christ ascending, uh, a lot of people get the idea that when it says descended into the lower parts of the earth, that's a bad translation. It's a weak translation, and it's wrongly applied to Second uh, First uh, Peter three, when Christ goes to make the victorious proclamation. Uh, you you've got to understand the analogy. God is moving from one part on the surface of the earth up. Okay, God did not go into the earth. Okay, he is coming from from Mount Sinai. So this isn't the descent. Isn't Jesus going to uh, going into the inner parts of the earth? The descent is Jesus coming from where? Heaven. It's the incarnation. He descends, and he and he has his life on the earth, and then there's the death, burial, resurrection, and then the ascension from the earth. So there's this parenthesis here, and then he comes back to the the main thought, which has to do with the giving of gifts. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now, if we take that parenthesis out and skip verses 9 and 10 and go straight into 11, it then says, and he himself, that is who? That is Christ, because we've already been introduced to Christ's gift, Christ is giving something, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Why? Why did he give those gifted people? Here it's it's not talking about the spiritual gifts. It's talking about the gifted people who have those spiritual gifts. The purpose is for the equipping of the saints, that is, you and I. We are the saints. We are members of the body of Christ set apart for, uh, set apart to God and set apart to serve God. And that's the role of the ministry. But we have to be taught and we have to be trained in order to properly carry out the ministry. So it's the role of the apostles, the uh, the apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers to equip the saints. Who does the ministry here? Not the pastor. We often refer to a pastor as the minister. No, he is one of those in the church that are doing ministry, but those who are to do the ministry are those who are in the congregation. The pastor is the coach, you're the team, you come here for your instructions, and then you go out into the world, and you carry out ministry. But ministry is primarily to one another. It is not to unbelievers unless it's in the relationship to evangelism, but we'll develop all of those things as we go forward. So the purpose of these gifts is to equip the saints 
for the work of ministry, and then that's further defined as the edifying, as the building up of the body of Christ. Now, it goes on to say very important things in the next couple of verses. That's not the end of the uh, sentence at all, but that's as far as we're going to focus just this morning. Now, what we did when we looked at the ascension in session was to review the order of events that took place and that are going to take place. First, there's the ascension of Christ, where he physically left the earth in his resurrection body and ascended through the heavens, through the three heavens, to the throne, uh, to the third heaven, the throne room of God. And he is then told by God the, God the Father, Psalm 110.1, sit at my right hand. So he sits. At that point, the ascension is over, and the session begins. Session from a Latin word uh, meaning to be seated. And he sits at his on his father's throne. He sits at the father's right hand, which is a position that is not one of rulership. He's not functioning as a king now. He's seated at the right hand of the father. It's not a function of a teacher. Remember, Jewish tradition, a teacher stands. He is seated. He is waiting for the kingdom. He is waiting for the time when he is to ask for the kingdom in Psalm 2.8. And then we looked at Daniel 7, uh, 14, and also down around 25 or 26, he asked for the kingdom. Uh, he's given the kingdom, and that giving of the kingdom comes only after what? After the little horn, which is the Antichrist, after the little horn has, the, has dominion, taken from him. Has the Antichrist appeared yet? No. Has he been given dominion yet? No. Has it been taken from him yet? No. So therefore, there's not a kingdom of Christ on the earth. It's not a spiritual kingdom. There's not a physical kingdom. And most of your evangelical churches that have um, their theology is about a quarter of an inch deep and about five miles wide. Uh, keep talking about the kingdom, and we're going to do this for the kingdom, and we're going to do that for the kingdom, and, and let's build the kingdom. And they don't understand that no matter what eschatology they may hold to, they're acting like they're a post-millennialist, and their job is to bring in the kingdom. The role of the church today is not to bring in the kingdom in any way, shape, or form. The goal of the church today is to be a witness and to lead people to the Lord Jesus Christ and then to train them. That's the essence of the, uh, of the Great Commission where Jesus told his disciples to, to go and, and make disciples by baptizing them. That is the natural result of someone who has trusted in Christ. And so baptizing represents evangelism that has taken place and they have been saved by baptizing them and teaching them to observe everything I commanded, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything that I commanded. So that mean, that's, that's the process that we're engaged in. You've had some people in the 20th century who thought, well, Jesus functioned with small groups. That's what discipleship is, so we have to have small groups. 
Well, how come you don't have any small groups functioning in the book of Acts? You have churches, you have congregations that come together because it's much more efficient for one person to teach and to explain the word to a hundred or two hundred or five hundred or a thousand than to expect that there's going to be so many mature believers that can just work with eight or ten and that's going to build the church. You never see small groups really function after you get out of the Gospels. Once you get into Acts, the apostles did not operate on a small group mentality. Sure, they had small groups. Everybody does. You have three or four people that you're more close to. But discipleship takes place by equipping the saints to do the work of the ministry. So Christ is going to eventually ask for the kingdom, Psalm 2.8. Uh, he will be uh, granted the kingdom. We saw that connected to Revelation 4 and 5. And then his taking dominion over the earth is what the seven years of the tribulation is all about. And he's granted that kingdom in Daniel 7:14 after the Antichrist is defeated. So he's not given the kingdom until he returns at the second coming. At the end of the tribulation, That's the first time you see Jesus referred to as the King of kings and Lord of lords. So the Messiah then returns to the earth, defeats the kings of the earth, Psalm 2.9, Revelation 19, 19-21, and then he will establish his rule over the planet during the millennial or messianic kingdom in Revelation 20. Now, who who is going to aid him in the administration of the kingdom at that time. Because remember, those that go into the kingdom are the believers who survived the the tribulation. They're the ones who are going to enter the kingdom. They are still in mortal bodies. They're still in corporate bodies. They're still going to be able to uh, get married and have children, and those children... Uh, will have sin natures just as their parents will have sin natures and that will develop through the thousand years of the millennial kingdom. But who is going to rule and reign with Christ? It is the church. It is the body of Christ. And the purpose that we're going to see for all of this is that the reason we are being equipped and trained in ministry today is this is our... Um, boot camp, as it were, to get us prepared to rule and reign with Christ in the millennial kingdom. So all of this is what is going on here. We are in that stage where we're learning so that when the time comes and we return with the Lord, we are prepared for our responsibilities in the coming kingdom. Now, what we learned about in terms of the importance of the ascension was, first of all, Christ's ascension put a human, the God-man, emphasis on man, at the right hand of the Father uh, overseeing history. Second, we saw that Christ's ascension demonstrates a significant shift in God's plan. Before that, the focus was on preparing for the coming of the Messiah, 
which was through Israel giving the Old Testament revelation that would prepare people to recognize the Messiah, but the whole focal point was through God's people, Israel. Now we have a new people of God, and the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of Man is waiting for the kingdom. So his session is related to the forming of this new entity, this new man. What have we seen in Ephesians so far? We've seen that in Ephesians 2, starting in about verse 15, the church is called the new man. It's called a new body. It's called a new household. It's called a new building. And it's called a new temple. Those five metaphors are used to describe who we are. Then the session ends when God the Father tells the Son to ask for the kingdom, Psalm 2.8. The Son's given the kingdom uh, after it is taken from the little horn in Daniel 7, 26 to, and verses 26 to 27. So now we are being prepared. We are the cadre that as being prepared to rule and reign with Christ when he comes in that kingdom. So how are we prepared? That's the question that is being answered in this section from 4-7 down through verse 16. How are we prepared? What is God's plan for preparing the church? This is such an important passage. You ask most people, what is the purpose of a church? Why do you go to church? What does the Bible say are the reasons you should go to church? And most Christians can't even get close. To use a shooting metaphor, they can't even get on the target. They're not even on the paper because they don't understand. They're never taught anything. And so they don't understand the nature of a church. A church is not a social club. A church is not a place you go. You don't choose to go to church because of fellowship. You do not choose to go to church because that's where your friends go. You don't choose to go to church because that's where you feel comfortable. You choose a church because the pastor is able to feed you the word of God in a healthy, nourishing diet so that you can grow and mature as a believer. We are to desire what? Desire the unadulterated milk of the word that we may grow thereby. It doesn't say desire the unadulterated music. It doesn't say desire the unadulterated fellowship. It doesn't say uh, desire the beautiful architecture and the comfortable environment. It doesn't matter what it looks like. It doesn't matter what the surroundings are. What matters is that you have a pastor that can feed you the Word of God so that you can grow as a result of it. That's First uh, Peter 2. Desire the unadulterated milk of the Word that you may grow by it, by the Word. That reflects what Jesus prayed in John 17. Father, sanctify them. The word, when you have the word sanctify like that, that relates to the spiritual life. Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. The means of our spiritual growth is the word of God. Without the word of God, all you're doing is having a, a fun time with people. Biblical fellowship is not having an enjoyable time 
doing things in life with other believers. We all have great times of social uh, intercourse with other believers with whom we have a great time. That's not necessarily Christian fellowship. Because Christian fellowship, that concept of fellowship, is people who are headed to a common goal together. And the common goal is spiritual growth and spiritual maturity and being able to effectively serve the Lord. And that can be, that can be an explicit part of our time with other believers where we're uh, talking about the Word and we're uh, asking questions and talking about verses that we have been reading and, and we enjoy that. That's explicit, but it's also implicit. You can get together with other believers, and that's what you all have in common is is your pursuit of spiritual growth. So you can talk about whatever it is you enjoy talking about, whether it's sports or food or cooking or uh, working out or uh, guns or whatever it is. Uh, you can enjoy that. But what it really brings you together is the Word of God and your desire to, to go forward. So that is what makes it uh, biblical Christian fellowship. And most churches don't have that because most churches, that's not the goal of people. Our goal is to glorify God, and our goal is to grow in the knowledge of God's Word. So what God has given us so that we can be prepared is described in 4.7. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, there's a lot that needs to be taken apart here. This first phrase, each one of us, in the Greek has the idea of emphasis, is an emphatic position, and the stress is something along the lines of to each one of us individually. So I'm going to translate it that way. To each one of us individually, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, what is this grace? Nine times out of ten, our knee-jerk response is to think in terms of the grace that was given to us at salvation. And if that's our answer, we would be wrong. That's why we have to study the Word a little bit, because it's not just words. See, we look at words, and we're trained, most of us, we're trained to think about the individual words as being significant. And if it was just that individual word, we could think back to what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Say we have the idea of gift and we have the idea of grace. And that seems to be contextual because it goes back a couple of chapters and it's in Ephesians. And that is a very common understanding, but it's wrong. And let me tell you why it's wrong. Because we're looking at a word and not the phrase. That's one of the great advantages that computer programs have given us in the last 30 years is that there are not only words that are important, but we do, and we do this all the time in English, we have phrases that mean something different than just the sum of the parts, just looking at the individual words. And what we see here is this phrase, grace was given. And that's used in some other places. Now, before I go to the next slide, I want to point out that uh, one of the meanings that the lexicon gives for charis is gift. 
And the word charis has another form that when you add M-A to the end of it, it refers to a grace gift. And charisma is a term that is often used in uh, in the scriptures in Romans, uh, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, where it talks about spiritual gifts. And the word charisma is used there. But there are times when Paul uses the shortened form of just grace to refer to a spiritual gift. And he's done that several times in Ephesians already. For example, and we spent a lot of time on this, in Ephesians 3.2, and I'm going to go ahead to this next slide because I didn't copy this other verse in here. We have that wonderful paragraph from 3.2 to 3.8. And in the beginning of that section, remember, this was sort of a parenthetical diversion for Paul because he wants them to understand his role in their life. And his role in their life is directly related to the apostolic gift and commission that he was given. And so he says, Indeed, you have heard of the administration of the grace of God which was given to me. Now, there's the full phrase, grace of God which was given to me, is not talking about salvation grace. It is talking about the gift, the spiritual gift that was given to Paul, or in the case of Ephesians 4, 7, it is a spiritual gift that is given to the church. The grace of God which was given to me, and then we're going to skip over the next few verses and then at the end of that paragraph it says Paul repeats he says of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of its power and when we did our study on that we saw that Paul uses this phrase a number of times in the epistles to refer to the his salvation when he is commissioned by Christ to be an apostle so that's what this is. That's one example of how just simply the word charis refers to that uh, spiritual gift in those particular verses. So simple, the shortened form of charis is sometimes Paul's shorthand for referring to a spiritual gift. And that's the context here because that's what we have starting in 4 7. Uh, then we have. Uh, the uh, quote from the Old Testament and then the parenthesis of 9 and 10 and then verse 11 starts talking about those gifts or gifted people really that Paul, uh, that, that Christ gives to the church. So that's what we see in that parenthesis in 4.7 to each one of us a grace a grace gift. Every believer gets a spiritual gift, at least one, at the uh, at, at salvation. and But he's really talking about four, uh, five specific ones in this passage. And those are laid out in 4.11. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors and teachers should be l- linked together. And we'll get into that when, when we get there. Now, this is talking about another blessing that we received at the instant of salvation. Almost a topical sentence for the whole epistle is Ephesians 1.3, that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. 
So this is just another spiritual blessing that God has given us. We have been given these gifted individuals that through them we might uh, be equipped for the work of the ministry and grow and mature uh, in our spiritual life. So I just want to take uh, the rest of our time this morning to go back and review these fir- the first three chapters. It's been, like I said, two months since we were really in Ephesians, and it's important to be reminded of what's been going on and how this fits within the structure of, of, of Paul's letter. And I want you to just just sort of take your Bible and turn back to um, chapter 1, and we'll just take a little time to walk our way through uh, Ephesians uh, 1 all the way up to the beginning part here of of chapter 4. And again, I remind you that verse 3 reads, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, when it starts off, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we saw, this is often a way of saying praise God, because God doesn't need any blessing. He, he's self-sufficient. So uh, the term blessed, you often have that in uh, in the Psalms, in synonymous parallelism with praise the Lord, bless his holy name. Okay, so praise and bless are synonyms uh, in, in that sense. Now, often in life, just as a way of, of uh, thinking in terms of application, we talk at times about God has blessed me. And I just want you to think about this as we go through this. How many times when you say, God has blessed me, I thank, thank you, Lord, for blessing me, that you even list one of the blessings that we're getting ready to go through, okay? Because these, these are the real blessings. We talk about, oh, I'm blessed with children, I'm blessed with a good job, I'm blessed with uh, a good neighborhood, I'm blessed with these different material things or, or, or physical things or social things. But that's pretty shallow when we stack it up against what Paul's talking about are the real spiritual blessings that we should be be focused on. So this epistle begins, I've got 25 points, we'll do it in less than 15 minutes. They're pretty fast. We've gone through all of this. The main epistle begins with 1-3, and this, that first section ends with 3-20 and 21. I want you to look at the bottom of the slide. Where it ends, the trajectory of these three chapters ends with this uh, praise of Paul's. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. What he describes in from 1.3 down to through 3.19 is, is what is above anything that we could ask or think. We would never think to ask, never imagine that we should ask for what is explained from 1.3 down to 3.19. All of the blessings that, that are there. So the main epistle starts in 1-3, that first section ends at 3-21, 
And because we understand these blessings, we praise God and give him the glory. Now, all of these blessings are ours. It starts off by talking about the uh, blessings from each member of the Trinity. So 3 through 14, we see the Trinitarian blessing. And I'm not going to go through the details of the exegesis, but in verses 3 through 6, he explains what the Father has done. He has appointed us to our destiny. We took a lot of time to go through looking at the words chose us and predestined us to understand that this is not talking about some sort of predetermined uh, fatalism. It's not determinism. That the word translated uh, uh, choose has the idea of selection based upon certain qualifications. We looked at Matthew chapter 20 and saw that the qualifications are related to the possession of, of the right clothing in the parable of the banquet, that those who could get in had the right clothing. They're, they possessed the righteousness of Christ. And predestination isn't predeterminism. It is setting, uh, establishing a destiny that God has a destiny for us, and he has set that ahead of time. And the us is important because us isn't us individually. It's us as the body of Christ. So for those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we as a corporate entity have a destiny that God has set ahead of time. So the Father has done this. The Son has redeemed us which has provided forgiveness in verse 7 in him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, that is through his death, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Since his riches are not finite but infinite, his grace is infinite. And we can never out his grace. We can never sin in such a way that it wasn't paid for at the cross. We have forgiveness. And that uh, if we go on and look at this, it talks about the inheritance that we have obtained. Verse 11, in him also we have obtained an inheritance. That possession of what we will realize in eternity is the destiny that we are set for, predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And then in verses 13 and 14, it emphasizes the role of the Holy Spirit. And that emphasizes the fact that we were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. And all of that emphasizes our eternal security. So that is, these are our blessings that we have, our inheritance, uh, that we are appointed to a specific destiny. It's not haphazard. God is taking us to, a, to an end game uh, that he has set as a plan for the church. And then following that introduction, Paul has a prayer, and he prays for us, and he prays for three things. He prays that we may come to know the hope of our calling. What that means is that we may understand our new identity and position in Christ, and this is our new vocation or calling as members of the body of Christ. It's this corporate entity. We're now part of a new team. 
and it's part of that new team, there's a new culture that's part of that team. And there's a new, uh, a new destiny as part of that team. And uh, that destiny involves uh, re- the realization of our inheritance, the inheritance that is provided for the church. And third, that uh, what God has provided in terms of the same power, uh, he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. So when we look at that, he says in the scripture that your um, that the eyes of your understanding having been, been enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and third, the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked where? When he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. The ascension is significant and the session because that is part of our destiny. Then we came to chapter 2. And in chapter 2, in verse six, verses 6 and 7, we're told, He raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's our new identity. When you get up in the morning and look in the mirror, you should practice thinking, I am a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. My identity is I'm part of the body of Christ. I'm part of the bride of Christ. I am in Christ and seated with him at the right hand of the Father. That's who we are. Everything else is circumstantial and irrelevant. Nothing can come close to that identity that we have in Christ. So we have been uh, raised up and seated together with him uh, in the heavenly places. Why? Well, that's, that's the, next, the next point is, or part of this point, is that he might show in the ages to come the exceeding riches of his grace toward us. We're grace trophies that are going to be put on display for all of eternity in the heavens. And what is so great about this is another blessing is that this is all based on a by grace through faith salvation. It's not based on anything we do. It's not based on who we are. It is a by grace through faith, not of works salvation. And that is a blessing because Christ did all of the work and we simply accept it by faith. The result of that, our seventh point in terms of review, is that we are his, King James translates it, workmanship. It's more than that. When God creates something and creates a work of art, it is a masterpiece. We as the church are a masterpiece created by God for the purpose of good works that God prepared beforehand. That is a tremendous blessing. We are a created masterpiece uh, by God's grace. And then starting in verse uh, 12, God reminds them as Gentiles of what they were before uh, they were saved. And there were five problems they had. They were without Christ. They were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. They were strangers from the covenant of promise. They were without hope, and they were without God. All of that has changed now that they are believers. 
And that's the contrast in verse 13. But now in Christ, you have been brought near. Those far off Gentiles have been brought near by the death of Christ. It's nothing that we could do. And this leads to understanding this new unity that we have with Jew, with the Jews. Jew and Gentile are now together in one body. Christ is our peace. He made peace between Jew and Gentile. A lot of times people start off in verse 14, he himself is our peace, thinking about peace with God. But that's not what the verse is talking about. It's talking about peace between Jew and Gentile because he has made the both Jew and Gentile one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, which was the law. He destroyed the law. That's the next verse. That's another blessing. Uh, He abolished the law, uh, abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. So that has been removed. That's another blessing. And he has gone on, our 12th point, to create in himself one new man from the two. Who are the two? Jew and Gentile. He's created one new man, thus making first peace horizontally between Jew and Gentile, and second vertically between uh, all human beings and God. Ephesians 2.15, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both, Jew and Gentile, to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. Notice there we're called a new man in verse 15 and a new body in verse 16. And 13th, now in Christ, Jew and Gentile are both uh, have access by one spirit to the Father. So that wasn't true before the cross. But now we both have access, both Jew and Gentile, by one spirit to the Father. What does that result in? That results in another blessing, that we're no longer strangers in relation to Jew and Gentile. We're not uh, hostile, but we are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That doesn't refer to anybody in the Old Testament because of the next verse. The household of God here refers only to the church. Point, that's the 15th. That household is built on the foundation of apostles and prophets. If it was built on the foundation of Old Testament prophets, it would be prophets and apostles in that order. But because it's apostles, that's church age, then prophets are talking about church age prophets. That's why we have the same order in Ephesians 4.11. The first gift is prophets. apostles, and then prophets, and then evangelists. Those are New Testament gifts. So the church is built on the foundation of New Testament apostles and prophets, and Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. He's not the chief cornerstone of anything in the Old Testament. This is all talking about the church. And another blessing is we're part of a new building, which is identified as a new temple being constructed by the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 2.21 and and 22. These are phenomenal blessings. Uh, And then we get into chapter 3, and Paul talks about the fact that the gift given to him is a blessing for the Gentiles. 
And just as God will get, uh, Christ gives these gifted people to the church in Ephesians 4, uh, 11 and 12, those gifted people are for the purpose of equipping the ch- ch- saints and Paul is functioning in that way. So in verses uh, 2 through 4, he talks about uh, this administration of the grace of God given to him for the Gentiles. That's our blessing. And he makes known to us the mystery that had previously been unrevealed. And that mystery, point 18, that mystery is another blessing revealed by the Holy Spirit to the New Testament apostles and prophets in Ephesians 3.5. In other ages was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. We get more blessing. Uh, we are c- called the same heirs. It, it doesn't communicate real well in English, but in Greek, each, three, each of these three terms begins with the preposition soon, which means together with. So we are the same heirs. We have the same inheritance. We are part of the same body, Jew and Gentile. We are, have the same promise of, of uh, our inheritance, a promise in Christ through the gospel. That's more blessing. Uh, point 20, again, another blessing that we might... Uh, that is that we might be used by God to make known God's wisdom to the angels, fallen and elect. See, we are a testimony. We are a, a visible a product of God's grace. Verse 10, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church. That's us. Not this church, but all those in the body of Christ to the principalities and powers. That's fallen angels as well as elect angels. Uh, 21, this is all important so that we don't lose heart uh, when we encounter adversity, opposition, rejection, or persecution. Paul was in prison when he wrote this, and he was afraid that the Ephesian believers would be discouraged because Paul was in prison. But he said, this is all according to God's plan, and so don't lose heart because I'm in prison. Don't be discouraged because we live in a in a fallen world with a lot of corrupt people who want to get rid of Christians in this country. And so Paul says, I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you. Another blessing, the end result of this is that we might know the love of Christ, the the unlimited dimensions of Christ's love for us. Uh, verses 18 and 19, that we may be able to comprehend with all the saints the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. That relates to spiritual maturity. And this enables us to know God more intimately. Uh, to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations. Then we come to our fourth chapter, and the first three verses sort of summarize what he has said in the uh, first three chapters uh, related to our calling, uh, that is, our new vocation in the body of Christ, and how we are to live in terms of humility. And then our last point, and that that relates to the unity we have in Christ, but even in that unity, we have differences. And those differences relate to our giftedness and the gifted people in the church, but we all need to grow to spiritual maturity together. 
So that brings us up to date on where we are in Ephesians. And now we'll come back next time to begin to probe into this these questions. How does God train us? What is the divine plan? And, and let me guess, it's not uh, to be a purpose-driven church. It's to be a scripture-driven church. And that's what it's all about. Father, thank you for this opportunity we've had to come together uh, today to look at this this part of your word, to be reminded of the flow of what Paul is saying, to understand the tremendous blessings that we as believers in Christ have because we are in Christ, because we're part of the body of Christ, we're called the bride of Christ. All of these are so important for us to understand this new identity, this new calling, this new vocation that is ours in Christ. We are new creatures in Christ with a new purpose, a new destiny, a new identity, and we need to live in light of what you have said is true about us. Father, we pray that if there's anyone uh, here today or anyone listening online uh, now or in the future and they've never really understood the gospel, it's very simple. It's the good news. Christ died on the cross for your sins, and if you believe that he died on the cross for your sins, then you have everlasting life, and that life can never be taken from you because it is a free gift. You do nothing to earn it or deserve it. You can do nothing to lose it. It is yours forever. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for all that you have given us, and we pray that we might be challenged by it uh, to really pursue spiritual growth and spiritual maturity and not just take for granted our, our life in Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.